Chapter Five of Mars is My Destination by Frank Belknap Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter Five. Well, there were twenty-five or thirty passengers wedged into the middle section of the train, all standing in slightly cramped postures, and most of them unsmiling. I knew exactly how they felt. Not being able to get a seat in an off hour in the evening can be irritating. But right at the moment there was no room in my mind for annoyance. A slow, hard-to-pin-down uneasiness was creeping over me again, as if a pendulum were swinging back and forth somewhere close to me, ticking out a warning in rhythm, and I couldn't shut out the sound of it. Just my overstrained nerves, of course. How could it have been anything else? I turned and looked at the man standing next to me. He was middle-aged, conservatively dressed, and had a square-jawed, rather handsome face, with a dusting of gray at his temples. He was frowning slightly, and his expression didn't change when I broke the rule of silence which was customarily observed in the underground. No reason for all these seats to be gone at this hour, I said. The crazy kind of over-exuberance mixed with peevishness that makes some people say things like that to total strangers a dozen times a day had always seemed inexcusable to me. But when you're under tension, you sometimes break all the habits of rational behavior you've imposed on yourself in small matters. My excuse was that I simply wanted to test the firmness and steadiness of my own voice, to make sure that, deep down, I wasn't nearly as apprehensive as I was beginning to feel. Yes, I know, the gray-templed man agreed. It burns me up a little, too. But I guess it just can't be helped at times. Operating an underground this size must be an awful train-scheduling headache. Headache or not, I said, there's no excuse for it. He smiled abruptly, exposing large white teeth and I noticed that there was something almost bird-like in the way his eyes lighted up. Small, black, very bright eyes they were, under short-lashed lids, and quite suddenly he made me think of a magpie alighting on a limb, taking off and alighting again, hardly able to restrain an impulse to chatter. What it boils down to, he said, is the old quarrel between a pedestrian and a man in a car. Neither can understand or sympathize with the other's point of view. Fifteen million people ride this underground every day, and to them it's a poor slob service at best. That's because they feel themselves to be the victims at the receiving end. But you've got to remember that safety precautions pose a problem. Avoiding accidents comes first, and the new Chicago transportation system considering its colossal size, does pretty well in that respect. People have been killed, I said, and could have bitten my tongue out. Why let him even suspect that I was thinking about something that wasn't tied in with his argument at all? Why give him the slightest hint? The underground's accident record was good, and couldn't have justified such cynicism on my part. And just suppose he wasn't the garrulous, middle-aged businessman he appeared to be. A very sinister game can start in just that way, with everything favoring the alerted party, until he lets the other know that he's on his guard and is having uneasy thoughts. 
That's where the danger lies, in a subconscious betrayal, a slip of the tongue that will precipitate violence faster than it would ordinarily occur. If a killer feels that he must move swiftly, before suspicion can become a certainty, the odds shift in his favor. He has the advantage of surprise. He becomes alerted, too, and necessarily acts as a goad, a kind of trigger mechanism. He'll act more quickly and decisively without the careful planning that may prompt him to talk too much and give himself away. He'll take risks that are dangerous and could destroy him, strike with witnesses present and all escape routes blocked. If he has to, he'll strike even in a crowded underground train with the next station minutes away. That kind of audacity sometimes pays off. I told myself that I was imagining things, jumping to a completely unwarranted conclusion. The conversation of the man next to me was exactly what you'd expect from a magpie. He was carefully sidestepping all realistic appraisals of the underground shortcomings, trying his best to look at the problem from all sides, even if it meant being shallow and over-optimistic. It was the citizen with a smiling face, the rather likable guy. Why should one hold it against him, who was trying his best to be fair to everybody, even if he had to burst a blood vessel doing it? Realizing all that made me feel less tense, and part of the nightmare feeling I'd been experiencing went away. But not quite all of it, and when the train passed into an unlighted tunnel, and the aisle went dark, apprehension began to mount in me again. What if he was putting on an act, and wasn't the kind of man he appeared to be at all? What does a killer look like? Certainly age has nothing to do with it. He can be young or old, eighteen or seventy-five. His appearance, his clothes... There were wild-eyed killers with psycho stamped all over them, and dignified, soberly-dressed men who looked no different from your next-door neighbor and had criminal records a yard long, including, in all likelihood, a murder or two the law would have a difficult time proving. I didn't have to speculate about it. I knew, because I'd done more than my share of social research. There was nothing to prevent a man of distinction from becoming a killer, if he had a secret life that was ugly and devious and a powerful enough motive. But now he was talking again, despite the darkness, and I was listening with my nerves on edge. I was completely in the dark as to why something about him had set the alarm bells ringing, but I was sure I could hear them, very faint and distant this time, but clearly enough. It was funny. Sometimes it meant something, and sometimes it didn't. I could feel that danger was hovering right at my elbow, and in the end discover I'd been completely mistaken. I hoped I was mistaken this time, but I knew there was a possibility. Remote, perhaps, but dangerous to ignore. That the man who had set the small mechanical killer in motion by the lakeside had followed me from the administration building into the underground and was standing by my side. You take one of the really big power combines, he was saying. Like, say, Wendell Atomics. It has its defenders and detractors, and I dare say there are quite a few people who would be happy to see its board of directors behind bars. I'm not defending the Wendell monopoly, understand. 
If I was a Martian colonist, I might feel quite differently about it. But you've got to remember that when you give the go-ahead signal for a project that big, you're asking 50 or 100 key executives to do the impossible, or pretty close to the impossible. The impossible, I said, trying to sound no more than mildly interested, because I didn't want him to suspect what a jolt his mention of Wendell Atomics had given me. Oh, yes, he went on. That's what it boils down to. Every one of those men will be as human as you or I. They'll react in highly individual ways to every problem that comes up, every frustration, every serious interference with their private lives. You've got to remember that a man's private life is the most important thing in the world, to him personally. Every one of those fifty or a hundred men will have health worries, money worries, love life worries, every kind of worry you can think of, and on Mars worries can pile up. So I've heard, I said. Well, that's all. That sums it up. I'm simply citing Wendell as an example of what the new Chicago transportation system is up against. I'd say, in general, that most of the directors are doing their best, when the old Adam in them isn't in the driver's seat, to keep the trains running on schedule. He stopped talking abruptly. I didn't think anything of it for a moment for a loquacious man will often pause in the middle of a conversation to wonder what kind of dent he's been making on the party who's doing most of the listening. But when a full minute passed and the darkness held, and he didn't say a word, when I couldn't even hear him breathing, I began to grow uneasy. Reach out and touch him? Well, why not? It was the simplest, quickest way of finding out whether he was still at my side and he could hardly be offended if my hand grazed his elbow in a jostling motion that would seem accidental. It was very strange. I didn't think he was the man I'd feared he might be any longer, because of what he'd said, because he had brought Wendell Atomics into the conversation. If he'd had designs on my life, giving his hand away like that would have been the height of folly. It would have been like giving me cards and spades, and a detailed history of his activities for the past five years. It didn't take any gifted reasoning to figure that out, and I didn't pride myself on it. Even a child could have done it. What disturbed me and kept me from feeling relieved was something quite different. The alarm bells were still ringing. They were still ringing. Louder now, and with a dirge-like persistence, as if I was already dead and buried and neither a child nor a grown man could have figured that one out. That's why I felt I had to reach out and touch him. I had to start him talking again. I had to be sure he was still there at my side. He was there, all right. He was there in the most alarming possible way, as a dead weight lurching against me, then swaying and screaming as I tried to straighten him up, and stopped the terrible downward drag of his sagging body. He was sinking lower and lower, clutching at my knees now, refusing to take advantage of the support I was offering him. I strained and tugged, but it was no use. He was too heavy to raise, and I could hear the breath wheezing out of his throat, and there could be no mistaking the weight of horror that was making him twist and writhe as he sagged. 
the deadliness of whatever it was that had struck at him in the darkness without making a sound. He screamed again. It was the kind of agonized protest which could only have come from the throat of a man who hardly knew what was happening to him, a man with his terror heightened and made more acute by the awful groping-in-the-dark realization that he was experiencing a torment he was powerless to explain. There had to be an answer, but I didn't know what it was, and when the scream died away and the tugging stopped, all I could hear for an instant was the steady droning of the train. Then there was another violent movement close to me, and a harsh intake of breath. My hand shot out, grazed something smooth that whipped away from me, and caught hold of a wrist that was much thinner than a man's wrist had any right to be. Much softer, too. Velvety soft. And it tugged and jerked in a frantic effort to free itself holding tight to the knife that it would have taken all of a woman's strength to plunge deep into my heart. But she could have done it, whoever she was, for there was a wiry strength in her, a strength so great that I had to twist her wrist cruelly before her fingers relaxed and the knife dropped to the floor of the train. She gasped in pain, or was it fury, and exerted all her strength again in a desperate effort to break my grip and this time luck was on her side. No, call it what it was. Luck may have figured, but most of it was plain, blundering stupidity on my part. I was pretty sure I knew what her first misdirected blow with the knife had done to the man I had been talking to, and the thought so sickened and unnerved me that my fingers relaxed a little when the knife went clattering, and she took advantage of that to break free. The passengers were crowding me now, pushing, shoving in alarm, and I knew it would be easy enough for her to force her way between them, still exerting all of her strength, and get far enough away to be just one of the thirty terrified people when the train roared out into the light again. They'd all look disheveled, on the verge of panic, and I wouldn't have a chance of identifying her. How could I have identified her with any certainty? even if she'd been the only one with a guilty stare. I hadn't the least idea what she looked like. I only knew that she wasn't old, was all woman in her lithe softness, the opposite of an Amazon, despite her strength. The femininity which had emanated from her, how instantly it can make itself felt, how instinctively overwhelming it can be, had made me feel like a brute for an instant even though I had known it was her life or mine, and I would have been quite mad to spare her. There were men I could think of, the opposite of brutes, who would have knocked her unconscious with a blow to the head. To spare a determined killer is potentially suicidal, but I doubted if I could have done that. I was still doubting it an instant later when the train emerged from the unlighted tunnel and the bright glare of the underground lamps flooded the aisle bringing the man she'd stabbed by accident into clear view. I was sure by now that she'd stabbed him by accident in a try for me, but that wasn't going to help him at all. He had flopped over on his back and was lying sprawled out in the middle of the aisle, and his eyes stared up at me, sightless and glazed. There was no blood, either on or beside him, but that only meant that he had been stabbed in the back, 
and there hadn't been time for blood from the wound to stain the edge of his clothes and trickle out from beneath him across the aisle. His face had the pallor of death, and his lips were drawn back over the large white teeth I'd noticed when he had been talking to me. Drawn back in a stiff, unnatural grin, and I didn't have to bend down and listen for a heartbeat I knew I wouldn't hear to be completely sure that the words he'd spoken to me would be the last he'd ever speak on earth. Just the way his head lolled back and forth with the rhythmic throbbings of the train would have clinched it for me. And I couldn't have been down, because the other passengers were all staring at him too now, and elbowing me away from him to get a closer look, torn between morbid curiosity and stark terror. I was too shaken, too sick at heart, to resent the elbowing. There was anger in me, too, cold, uncompromising, and right at that moment I could no longer even think of her as a woman. It was past midnight when I got home and let myself into the apartment. I was more shaken than I would have cared to admit to anyone who didn't know me as well as Trilling did, because casual acquaintances can do you an injustice and judge the extent of your control by the way you happen to be looking at the moment. I was quite sure that I was looking very bad, and however severely I'd been shaken up by what had happened, I still had a fair measure of control over my emotions. I hadn't stayed on the train or on the platform to assist in the investigation, but I didn't feel guilty about it. Trilling could square all that with the authorities easily enough, and he wouldn't have wanted me to talk to the police and have to identify myself. I was sure of that. My evidence would be taken down and turned over to the proper authorities in good time. The rule for me, the only rule I had a right to consider, was no entanglements. I shut and locked the front door and almost called out, It's me, darling as I usually do when I come home late, because when Joan is alone in the apartment and hears a door opening and closing, she gets angry when I just walk in unannounced. It's part woman curiosity, part fear, I guess. The thought that it could be a prowler, and why should she be kept in suspense while I'm hanging up my hat and coat? But this time something prevented me from calling out. Possibly the quarrel we'd had was still rankling a little deep in my mind, and I wasn't quite sure how she'd take the darling. My stubborn pride again. Or possibly it was just the feeling I had that the apartment was quieter than usual. That when you're keyed up and alert enough to hear a pin drop, and you hear nothing, just a stillness that's a little on the weird side, your anxiety becomes too great to be relieved by calling out a cheery greeting. I felt somehow that it would be wiser and set better with the way I felt, if I just hung up my coat and walked into the living room without saying a word. So I walked into the living room without saying a word, and she was sitting right in the middle of it, on a straight-back chair, with all of her bags packed and standing on the floor by the window, and with all of my bags packed and standing cheek by jowl with hers, and the three trunks that were going with me to Mars all sealed up and double-locked, and she wasn't angry or shaking her head or looking at the luggage with scorn. There was pride in her lustrous brown eyes, and the adorable tilt of her chin, and a warmth and a tenderness, 
and she was smiling at me and nodding. Oh, darling, she said. Darling, darling, come here. Did you think I'd ever let you go to Mars without me? It was just talk, just stubborn, wild, crazy talk, and it didn't mean a thing. If you marry a woman like Joan and ever have a moment of doubt, well, it means you ought to have your head examined. But you're twice as far removed from sanity if you throw away the check. For you can always be sure it will be redeemed eventually, in full measure and brimming over. I didn't even have to put on my uniform and attach the small silver hawk to it. End of chapter 5